All right, let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for gathering this flock of yours, this group of like-minded believers, Father. We pray for your Spirit's guidance this morning that his convictions find fertile soil and that we all humbly abide in the one thing that binds us to you eternally, your love. We pray that we continue to increase in grace orientation and that the benefits of being precious children in your eyes be forever impressed upon each of us granting us the full assurance of being saved and sanctified. We pray especially, Father, for those not able to be with us this morning, members of this beloved church, and also for those still struggling with their faith. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's title is The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 117. And uh, this is, as far as I know, the very last installment of this magnificent series. And if you recall, um, the, only, the only series we have on the website is this series. I took off 1,400 hours of lessons off the website because I felt, and the Spirit convicted me, that they were, quote, tainted a little. I don't like it. He didn't like it. So we pulled them off. And now we've got a brand new, fresh start from the beginning. And where else should we start than with the gospel, salvation, and then sanctification? Amen? It's been a beautiful, beautiful journey. Um, I think about all of you out there, you know, uh, trying to evangelize people, and then as we're going to learn this morning, bring them to the church. Uh, you can say, listen, go to part one. It's easy to find. Go to part one of the series and start her up. And, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful place to be able to direct uh, even the newest of believers. With that said, um, if you haven't taken the time to listen to Thursday evening's special message, then may I encourage you each to do so. And as many have already done, they've already shared that message with friends and family. Why? Frankly, because they love them. <laughs> because they love them. Thursday's message is a message that every so-called Christian parent and child ought to hear, bar none. Every Christian, so-called Christian parent and child ought to hear, bar none. And just so you know, for those of you who didn't hear it, I only spoke for about four or five minutes. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you haven't seen it, and now you're really interested because I only spoke for four or five minutes, well... Whatever. Speaking of love, <laughs> speaking of love, let's give no room for Satan's schemes and remember that love conquers all and Satan has no weapon that can be successful against the power of God's love. 
1 Corinthians 13, 8a and 13, 13, part b. Let's give no room for Satan's schemes and remember that love conquers all and Satan has no weapon that can be successful against the power of God's love. Let him not divide us, in other words. I'm telling you right now, uh, there are immense attacks going on uh, behind the scenes on this ministry, on members of this ministry. Um, you may not see it, but I do. You cannot teach a series like this one and not expect to be wholly attacked from without and sometimes even from within. So keep this church in prayer. Satan desires nothing more than for this church to crumble all around us as I speak. Trust me when I say it. He would want nothing more than for this church to literally cave in on us right now. As Christ himself said, a house divided against itself falls. Luke 11 17. Do not give Satan that opportunity. Boy, is he trying. Boy, oh boy, is he trying. And the worst fractures do not come from without. They come from within. I've been fighting tooth and nail for all of you so that that doesn't happen. Seeing the start of fractures, seeing even the potential of fracture, and jumping all over it, and trying to build certain people up so that they don't get fractured, and build other people up in other ways so that they don't take that opportunity that Satan gives them to cause division in the church. Please keep an eye on it. And the thing that keeps us all together, we're all very different people. We're going to have disagreements from time to time, whatever. But love will bind us together in the unity of the faith. So don't forget that. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. I mean, the Holy Spirit's putting a nice, tidy little bow on this series this morning. And it truly is magnificent. Uh, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but honestly, it could happen. But I could die tomorrow and I'd be satisfied. I'd be in heaven saying, that was awesome. Seriously. I had the privilege of teaching 117 parts. Well, with Scott's help as well. But, you know, being uh, a part of this huge series, and then just giving it as a gift to the community uh, at large, to all of you. I mean, it doesn't get any sweeter than the gospel of salvation and sanctification. So Ephesians 4.11 means an awful lot to guys like me, and it should mean an awful lot to folks like you. Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ until we attain to the unity up here in the board. The unity of the faith refers to the God-given harmony that only true believers may enjoy. I mean, if you're a true believer listening to my voice right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is no sweeter thing than to fellowship uh, together uh, in the presence of God. 
So refers to the God-given harmony that only true believers may enjoy. This kind of unity transcends all national, cultural, socioeconomic, traditional boundaries, etc. It is truly a, quote, taste of heaven. It truly is a taste of heaven. And who cares how we look different than the person to our left or to our right or how you know, our color, our nationality, or our socioeconomic standards, our income, who cares? None of that even matters. I mean, this is what the Spirit's been teaching us. If anything, some of the things that are held up are the worst culprits of all for causing division, for going against the unity of the faith. And so the Spirit's been asking us to really check ourselves throughout this entire series just for a little more perspective as well, especially since we believers are headed for heaven, a.k.a. via ultimate sanctification, remember that Satan was thrown out of heaven a long time ago. We know that from Scripture. Here's Isaiah 14, 12 on the board. Satan was thrown out of heaven. That's no longer his abode. He was the anointed cherub, as Scripture says. And what does verse 12 say on the board? It says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. That's Satan. Satan's no longer living or abiding in heaven. So we are going to think about it this way. It's just perspective. Where we are going, believers, where believers are going to be eternal residents in heaven, Satan is no longer welcome as a resident. He lost his abode a long time ago, and it irritates him to no end that Christ, our husband, has gone to prepare a place for us there. Again, verse 13 of Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.13 Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking in the truth in love. We ought to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Again, love is the tie that binds, hence the previous point up here on the board, on the unity of the faith that refers to the God-given harmony that only true believers may enjoy. This kind of unity transcends all national, cultural, socioeconomic, traditional boundaries. It is truly a taste of heaven. Therefore, to reiterate how we closed on Tuesday evening up here on the board, let's give no room for Satan's schemes. And remember that love conquers all. And Satan has no weapon that can be successful against the power of God's love. And that's 1 Corinthians 13 up here on the board. 1 Corinthians 13, 8a, love never fails. 
1 Corinthians 13, 13b, but the greatest of these is love. Last Sunday, the Spirit asked me to put closure on the, what I call the heart-to-heart regarding the rise in evangelistic activities in this particular church. Fantastic things going on. Wonderful, edifying things going on. But, as is the case so many times, any time something that magnanimous occurs, this sort of groundswell, there has to be a check. There has to be some kind of a counterbalance, lest we become lopsided. And so we had this heart-to-heart Uh, shepherd the sheep last Sunday and again that's one of the battles that I've been that I alluded to earlier these are the soft issues that if left unchecked by a delinquent shepherd let's say they grow into things and the next thing you know you do have fractures in the unity of the faith that shouldn't be there and so I hope you appreciate what the spirit's doing when he has me do those heart to hearts with you So he had me do that last Sunday. As always, we consulted the Holy Scriptures on the topic. Go to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 5. You know, not every fight uh, in the spiritual life, certainly not in the ministry, but in your own personal ministries, is a bloodbath. That makes sense. Not every fight is against what we would dub an enemy. Not every fight is with a sword or, you know, is aggressive. Sometimes fights, you know, sometimes I have to, oddly enough, almost pick a fight with you. Because if I don't do it when I do it, then you're going to end up picking a fight with either me or somebody else, and it's going to be a bigger fight. And so I have to nip some things in the bud by sort of, you know, picking a little fight with you. Hey, let's talk. Oh, here we go. Can't you just let things be? It's so great what's going on in the church. Why do you get to spoil it? First <laughs> uh, Corinthians 12.5, And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And I hope you take that to heart, truly. That's just the Spirit's way of saying, hey, listen, everybody here has their own ministry. Not everybody's going to do it the same way. We all have that general calling on our lives, the Great Commission, Um, but nobody's really going to do it the same. They may look alike, you may do things for a time the same, but everybody has a certain calling on their life and a certain condition in which they were called. The crux of that heart-to-heart then was summarized this way up here on the board, and it was sort of pivoting on patience, not to get ahead of ourselves in either side, whether we're the, the ones doing it and encouraging others or the ones that aren't called yet to do it and are being sort of drafted in, have some patience. Do not confuse encouragement from others as commandments from the Spirit. Conviction to, quote, do in the spiritual life 
must be from the Holy Spirit, not man. Even I, I can't tell you, you have to go out and carry the yoke. I can't tell you that. I don't want you doing that thing unless you're actually convicted to do it. Otherwise, I'm telling you to do something that you're not actually supposed to be doing. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of that. You're supposed to be off doing something else. Maybe instead of walking with that thing, you're supposed to be at a, you know, with Frank or something. Adding encouragement. You're supposed to be, you know, trying to evangelize Frank's nurse, who Frank is torturing. <laughs> who knows? You got me being silly, but who knows, right? If you're off doing the wrong thing, then you can't be doing the right thing. So while encouragement is good, Hebrews 3.13, we mustn't try to mimic another's calling. So please do not get in the way of the Spirit's convicting ministry in your life. Okay? Just don't get in His way. He'll let you know when it's time. And for those of you who find yourselves on the, quote, other side of this equation, you have to remember what Jesus actually said. As I've taught you so many times in the past, finish the sentence. Now here's a very, this is the crux of this morning's message outside of the fact that we are putting a closure on the series. But this is a big deal. Go to Matthew 28, 18. So I need you to concentrate and think about my lessons on finishing the sentence. In other words, if you're going to go to Scripture, then take all that Scripture says. Read the whole thing. What was Jesus really saying? So we're going to look at that. Matthew 28, 18. We do know this, obviously, as the quote-unquote succinct Great Commission in Scripture. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go therefore, excuse me, and make disciples. Okay? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Comma, I'm not done. I'm not done. Teaching them to observe what? All. Uh-oh. So I'm supposed to go make disciples of all the nations. You mean like evangelize them? Yeah. Go evangelize them. Comma. Or in your case, this way, right? Hey, it's hard, you know, sometimes. Comma. I'm not done teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Oh. Uh-oh. So let me give you a little bit more on this so-called Great Commission. This might be an aha moment for some of you. The Great Commission, quote, Make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus sent his disciples, who were both saved and further educated, to make more disciples, save and educate. Merely evangelizing does not complete the Great Commission. Oh! Oh! You mean I can't just take my little, 
you know, airplane and just toss out a thousand coins and they hopefully they hit a, a homeless person on the head and they go, oh my God, I never heard of Jesus, I'm saved. And then that's it? Is this what he said? I don't know, you read it in Scripture, what did he say? He said, go make disciples, teaching them all that I commanded you. Now, these guys were with Jesus for a while, right? So he must have taught them an awful lot, right? I mean, we just spent almost a year on the gospel of salvation and sanctification, right? You throw a coin at somebody, do you think they know everything that you've learned over the last year almost? Hardly. Oh, you mean I thought I was just supposed to go out there? No, I just, just, all right, ready? let's just totally abominate the gospel. Let's just all make a bunch of yokes. You can make one lighter because that thing weighs a quarter ton. And let's just walk up and down the street and hope people get saved. And then we can go get a couple of beers after and say, man, we did good work today. Is that the complete Great Commission? I don't read that. Comma, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus sent his disciples who were both saved and further educated to make more disciples, to save and educate. Merely evangelizing does not complete the Great Commission. So let me give you an analogy. Suppose a shepherd finds a little lamb that apparently has no flock to call its own. Essentially, it's lost and will die eventually unless a shepherd comes along and makes it his own. So a shepherd does come along and he adopts this little lamb saying, you are mine now. And so this little lamb enjoys the best sleep it's ever had that night, feeling totally secure and looked after. However, when it wakes up in the morning, the shepherd and his flock are long gone, having left the little lamb all alone. This is what it's like when we go out, evangelize, and then leave those who might actually be saved to their own devices, without any encouragement whatsoever as to next steps. That's why Jesus said what he said. He didn't just say, go throw a track and hopefully it hits him off the head. And then you get to go back and brag about how many people got saved that day. Comma. Look at the board again. What does Scripture say? This is not Pastor Ed. I'm not trying to get people in the church, if that's what you're thinking. This is Jesus Christ, our shepherd, saying, I don't want you to go tell little lambs they're all set and then leave them. Make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Jesus sent his disciples, who were both saved and further educated, to make more disciples. He said, go make more of you. Okay, now that you, quote unquote, get it, like you do. Now that you get it, let's make more people that get it. 
And then they'll make more people that get it, you know, like a generational thing. Can you imagine that? Imagine if everybody just got, quote-unquote, evangelized with whatever that means, minimal doctrine whatsoever, and that was the end of it. And nobody ever made or educated these disciples. It'd be a very milky world, wouldn't it? Not a whole lot of meat. So maybe Jesus was on to something. <laughs> Merely evangelizing does not complete the great commission. So says Scripture. Hmm. If the great commission includes these things, then what might we consider doing after we evangelize someone? What might we consider doing after we evangelize someone, given, you know, what Jesus said. In many ways, a newly evangelized believer is vulnerable. They're just a little lamb. You can be 60 years old and a, a lamb in the spiritual life. Up here on the board... The truly converted will have a new thirst for truth. I'm talking about the truly converted. We're not going to get into all this again, how the, the professing ones don't, because we know they exist as well. They like the idea of just being thrown a coin and pretending they're going to heaven and they're hedging their bets. And blah, 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 blah. Right? They love that. And people that want to be adored for all the wrong reasons, they love teaching that. we got enough of that. We've already... Talked about that ad nauseum. I'm talking about the truly converted will have a new thirst for truth, a hunger for it. A false profession will not produce the same results. To leave one of God's children, quote, starving is to violate the Great Commission. We ought to help them find a place to be fed. Who here, raise your hand if you want to be the one person that violates the Great Commission. I don't. But we went out and we saved like 10 people. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Where are they now? I have no idea. Wandering the streets still, I guess. Wondering what the heck goes on next. Wondering why you left them. Did they really love me? They just left me here. They haven't even told me what the next steps might be. <laughs> the Great Commission says, make disciples and teach them all that I've commanded you. How are you going to do that if you supposedly save them on the side of the road over here and then you drive away without some connective tissue? What the Spirit's saying here is simple. <clears throat> if you're going to get all fired up over the Great Commission, then finish the sentence in your soul. Finish the sentence in your soul. And know that God wants you to take a special interest in His own. Do you think there's scripture that exists on that? Oh, geez, I don't know. What's, what's Pastor Red's history? Does he like to go to scripture or not? In fact, if you don't at least have the base desire to look after others in the faith, then you might have a problem, my friend as we've learned. I didn't say that. You know who said that? The Apostle of Love. John. Go to 1 John 2.9. 1 
1 John 2, 9. If you're one of these people that just snaps coins off of people's heads and then keeps a tally of how many people you've saved over your lifetime and then runs away, eh, you might have a problem. If you don't have any care in the world whatsoever of God's sheep, just saying. What did John say? I don't know. What does Scripture say? Don't listen to Pastor Ed and don't you dare take offense with me. Shame on you if you have a problem with what I just said. You don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with Scripture. Read it. 1 John 2.9 The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. Look, I'm not some bleeding heart pastor who's trying to increase his church attendance. Honestly, I'm an honest shepherd teaching you all what it truly means to fulfill the Great Commission. What Jesus meant when he said, go make disciples and teach them all of my commandments. Go to Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10. Let's just finish the sentence. That's all he's saying. And he's saying that a true disciple of his will want to finish the sentence. In other words, when they go out to evangelize, their ultimate goal is not just to tally up how many people are being saved, but rather than to establish some kind of a discipleship with that person and let them know, hey, you're just a little lamb right now. Your next steps, you've got to go somewhere. You've got to take in the Word of God. I love that we're giving uh, some of these folks Bibles. That's a great way to start. But you need to actually encourage them to press on, to move forward. To be fed. I mean, most people are not going to be able to even... I mean, they can, but there's a reason why spiritual gifts like this one actually exist. It's to feed. That's why I took you to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, first thing. To remind you that there's a whole infrastructure that exists for the little lambs. Galatians 6.10, what does it say? So then, while we have the opportunity... Let us do good to all people, and what? Especially, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. It's amazing how much time we will spend relating to people that absolutely love the world and despise Christ. We have better relationships, let's face it, with people that love the world than the people we even evangelize. Let's face it. Is that not true? Of course it is. You know it to be true. Go to work. Who are you hanging around with? Even who's in your family sometimes, right? It says especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So you'll spend all this time on lost people with a relation, excuse me, with on a relationship with people who could care less, who may have rejected totally the gospel but you won't spend any real time with people that you evangelize, people that are actually in the faith. And you prefer one over the other. 
And that's, that starts reeking, my friends, of loving the world, which brings you into the equation now. I didn't say that. Scripture said that. Where's your heart, in other words? Is your heart with the world? You're going to leave, you're going to walk out here and go, oh, that was, that was good. I was, you know, I was convicting, blah, blah, blah. It was fun to see my friends and stuff like that. Okay, well, all right, what's my buddy uh, anti-Jesus doing today? Got to go to the gym and work out with anti-Jesus. You know, maybe get a couple of brewskis after, go, you know, go shop around for a few, you know, a few shorties, you know what I'm saying? That's ladies, that's, anyways. People like shorties, what is that, like a cigarette? No, no. It's <laughs> trying to be hip. I'm 47, so that's about as good as it gets, right? Don't get out much. I mean, what are you, who, who, are you, who are you relating to? This is especially of those who have the household of faith. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What did, didn't Jesus tell parables about this? Who are you giving the, 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 the head of the table to? The person who's, who's after your, your coin purse? Your, the, the, the person who's after your bank account? The person who sues you? The person who's competing against you in the world? The person that loves the world? And because they're wearing, you know, glitter and gold and their hair's this tall and, you know, they got nice $60 perfume. Oh, people like 60 How about 160 right? Whatever. You're giving them the seat at the table and you're making the family, those of the household of the faith, sit on the floor. Is that a picture of your life? Think about that. That's exactly what Jesus was guarding against. Go make disciples and then teach them all. And then Paul said in Galatians 6.10, especially those, while you have an opportunity, especially those, okay, I just evangelized you. Neon sign, opportunity, opportunity, I just evangelized you. And the guy's like, this is amazing. All right, see you later. What? This big screaming neon light, opportunity, 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 especially, it's a big thing, especially me. You know, with the arrow, right? And your buddy's right next to you, you know, because you go out in twos and his shirt says, I'm with stupid, and it's accurate. <laughs> right? It says, why you have the opportunity? I mean, come on, he's, you're sitting there, you just gave him the gospel. Nothing sweeter in the world than to save a soul. And if you believe that this person is saved, what are you doing? You're going to go running back to your buddies? Anti-Jesus? It's getting late. Jim's going to close. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, let's not leave these people out to dry. God desires that you take special notice of his own family. And that means not just trying to get people into the family, but once they are members of the family. Let's appear. Up here on the board. Once they are members of the family, let's do this. Let's invite them to the table to dine on the very bread of life with us. Let's kick the person with all the glitter out. See, you're gone. I'm done with you. Gave you the gospel. You told me to my face. You think Jesus Christ is a farce. Out! Get out of my house! <laughs> right? And give someone of the faith, especially, a seat at the table. You know, like this one. We're dining right now, amen, on the bread of life. 
here's the perspective we garnered from our previous studies up here on the board, the local church. Most converts are already addicts, addicted to the world system. For years they have been intoxicated by it. Just because a person gets, quote, clean through the detox program, for example, you know, saved, it doesn't mean they're no longer tempted. Recovered addicts require support programs. Spiritual addicts require churches. That's what this is all about. We're not, look, as, as, as mighty as the emphasis has been on the Great Commission, go out and evangelize. Awesome. But, comma, let's complete the sentence. Satan would love nothing more than for us to leave new converts by the roadside to fend for themselves. He hates it when we feed God's sheep. Hates it. Says, well, I lost another one, but I can sort of, you know, frustrate the entire plan of God by having this arrogant person over here, instead of actually watching the opportunity sign, he's got a little, you know, a little all out on his belt and he's writing a notch. Yeah, yeah, number three today, saved. Next, who's that about? Honestly, who's that about? You or the person saved? Because if we're supposed to lay down our lives for others, greater love is no one than this, than to what? Lay down his life for his friends, then it isn't about you or how many notches you have in your belt. It's about the person you just evangelized and then getting them to church. And if they're local, I mean, where else are you going to put them? I'm not saying that we're the, you know, we're pretty good, though. I'm just saying, I don't, don't even go there. I'm just like, tempt you guys like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, shh. Flesh down, flesh down, right? But you know what I mean? You know, that, you know that this is a wonderful blessing from God, this church. Amen? Has nothing to do with me. Has nothing, it's a blessing from God. Well, you know, why not? Why not get them here? Honestly, why not get them here? And if they're in, you know, if they're in Timbuktu, then get them on the website. I don't even know. I, I, I'm not even exaggerating. It's got to be at least thousands of hours by now. Not hundreds even. Probably thousands. Is that fair, Greg? On the website? I mean, I've had like three or four different website redos and God knows something. Maybe thousands is precedent. How about a thousand? That's a lot of time. Anybody got a thousand hours? It's good. It's really good. The work we do here is awesome. Well, let's take advantage of it then. Let's just not run outside the church now and start, you know, making notches in our belts. Let's go outside the church and then get people saved and then, comma, teach them all that he commanded his own disciples. So that's the evangelist's perspective on this. On the flip side is the new convert who's looking for people who actually care about them. It's interesting. One of the comments that keeps sticking with me is something someone told me about their time in the park with homeless people. And I'm paraphrasing here, but one of the homeless people said, quote, it's just nice to know that someone cares about us and that you all are taking or talking to us like real people. You know what I hear in that exchange? I hear a person who's looking for a relationship with another human being that actually has 
Christ's love and unconditional love. That's what I hear. I hear someone who's actually saying, thank you for caring about me. Thank you for giving me this Bible. Thank you for taking the time and evangelizing me. Thank you. It's nice to know that not only do you talk of Christ, but his love exists in you. And I can see it's real because we're relating at a personal level here. I didn't get hit off the top of the head with some coin out of some airplane. You walked up to me, and you gave me the gospel, the sweetest thing I've ever known. I don't want you to go somewhere else. That's how you'll know, by the way, that someone's most likely truly evangelized. They'll be like, wait, wait, wait. (laughs) Wait. Because in that moment, they've just had a new creature created in them with a new thirst for truth. They'll say, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) What do I do now? But if they're just like, hey, thanks, you got another water, you got another uh, granola bar over here? I need, I, need a sh- I need a shave kit for my legs. Have you looked at them? I mean, these things aren't bad. And they do speak of Christ's love to them from us. But we're trying to evangelize people, right? And then we're supposed to, especially those of the house of the faith, look after them. The greatest way to look after them is to feed them the word of God. Man should not live on bread alone, right? But every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that's this. Well, how are they ever going to get it? All right, all right. One of the little Bibles. I forgot. Hey, go deep. Right? And then you turn around and run away. Wait a minute. No, this is about... You know, these are real people. I know it's hard to believe for some people. These people that are down and out, that are actually open to Christ's love, are real people. Not your jackass friends that sit at the the, the head of your table, the ones who could care less about Jesus Christ. Not those people. These people, the ones who are able to evangelize, the ones who are pressed down. Look at Jesus' audience. Ask yourselves a question. Right? Go to any church like this across the country, one that's actually consistently teaching truth. And I don't mean to offend anybody. Please don't be offended. Something tells me not even to say this, but God the Holy Spirit is saying, say it. Okay, you ready? Where are all the doctors, the lawyers, the dentists, the optometrists, and all the other educated PhDs? Where are they all? The ones with all the money, you know, and the prestige in this world. Where are they all? But yet, if one of those people walked into your house, you'd say, oh, sit right here, up here at the front. Oh, no, 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 you sit right here. You get special treatment because the world loves you. I know, I realize, you know, you could give a crap about Jesus Christ. And I got my other friend over here who smells like pig pen. I'm going to go put him near the dogs. You go over there because you stink a little bit. Even though you're, you know, a member of the faith. And the Bible says, especially take after you. While there's opportunity while I'm alive, Especially look after you. Nope, I'm going to give cause for this person. The same ones who won't show up to a church like this for lots of obvious reasons. It's the same reason a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. So says Jesus Christ. So you think about the Great Commission, folks, and you think about Jesus Christ's love. Where is it? Is it in you? 
honestly, is it in you? Because this little scene right here says it's not. It says you're a farce. So some people have a lot to think about. And this is what the Spirit's been saying to this congregation. Some of you are like, oh, man. So when I hear people going into a park or wherever they're going, I hear of people that are looking for relationships with other people. That's what I hear. So if we manage to evangelize someone like that, we need to adopt a sense of responsibility for them by accepting that God wants you to have a real relationship. <gasps> That's the R word, right? Relationship. Ooh, it takes work. I know. Last time I checked, you're a laborer for Christ. Last time I checked, you were enlisted into his army. Last time I checked, you have a master in heaven that you're supposed to be listening to. Oh, relationship. It takes a real relationship, though, doesn't it? How are you going to understand the opportunity exists? How are you going to understand if it's especially a person of the faith unless you spend any time with them? If you're spending all your time with people that love the world... How are you going to have a sense? How are you going to develop a sense of responsibility for these people? You won't. So God's saying, hey, how about you shut off Maury Povich? That was for the old people. All right? I'm a split generation guy, right? Why don't you shut him off and start listening to what the Spirit's really saying? Where's your sense of responsibility? to these people. I don't know, that's between you and the Lord. Handing out tracts is fine, and if someone's saved as a result, hallelujah. But, that's still only fulfilling half of the Great Commission. Finish the sentence. So, in comes the value of the local assembly. Up here on the board, the local church mission. Once a person is saved, their first objective is to keep on learning the Word of God. Just imagine the attacks on that person. If and when we evangelize someone, we ought to encourage them to attend a sound church under a sound pastor, such as with North Christian Church. Our relationship with new believers shouldn't end after the gospel presentation. It shouldn't. This is our work. Now listen, this is our work and our sanctification in time. Love, to love. You're, you, look, I know it's a lot easier. Trust me, I'm just as bad sometimes, right? I know it's a lot easier not to love somebody who smells like pig pen. I know it's a lot easier sometimes to love, quote-unquote, the person who wants very little to do with Christ, for whatever reasons, history, family, whatever, than it is the one who may be less appealing to my senses. I get it, so I'm not talking down to you. But what I've learned and what Scripture has ratified in my life is that the more I love, the more I'm... This is my sanctification. This is it. Like, abiding in love, this is my sanctification. It's not learning more about sanctification. It's actually abiding in love. That is my sanctification. And if I truly love, then I'm going to do stuff that might be a little painful. Maybe it is a little painful to say, all right, I've got to have a relationship with what the world calls a bum. Or I've got to have a relationship with 
oh man, this guy's, this guy's personality is like sandpaper. Right? Some of you are like, yeah, that's you. Whatever. Right? I don't care. Whatever. Ever become your enemy? So handing out tracts is a show of love, but fostering a relationship is love. Let me say it again. Handing out tracts is a show of love, but fostering a relationship is love. There's a big difference, my friends. As we've learned over dozens of lessons over the course of the past several months, experiential sanctification is actually being someone, not just knowing what you're supposed to be. There's a huge difference. You want to come here and just learn about, you know, and pontificate on what it means to, you know, what the definition of love is and, you know, hypercategorize Jesus Christ. And so go down the street. I, can, I got plenty of guys I can turn you on to. You'd have a blast there. They would love you. But if you actually want to, quote, succeed in the Great Commission, what else do you want me to teach you? It's in Scripture, right? Go make disciples and teach them. So it doesn't end just with evangelizing someone. That may be a shocker to some people, but hey, listen, cling to these things as we finish up our final lesson on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. Now with that said, I just got to put some closure on this wonderful series. Let me ratchet us back into ultimate sanctification uh, there was just a little work we couldn't finish. I'll finish it up. We'll close up shop, and we'll go get some people baptized out front. I'll start with a wonderfully stated principle from a couple of weeks back up here on the board. This is where we're going, my friends. Ultimate sanctification. This is the ultimate promise and therefore the ultimate motivation to living for Christ now, for living by faith while we still have time, and for going out and making disciples for our Lord, so we can honestly be a fellow partaker in His gospel forever and ever as we celebrate Him for all eternity. Scott, that was a really long sentence. It's one of Scott's slides. If you couldn't tell, he likes run-ons. Obviously. You're like, yeah, you like commons. Good man. Good comeback. Ultimate sanctification. The basis of this promise is Jesus Christ, his person and work on the cross, as noted up here on the board. The living word. We rely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not just knowledge. Because guess what? You ready? If it was just about the knowledge of Jesus, well, I know and I believe that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected after three days for my justification. And if I believe that, I'm saved. Guess who else believes that stuff? You ready for this one? Demons. What does that mean? So is every demon saved then? Because they believe it too? Come on, people. You know what we have with Jesus Christ? You know what he wants with Jesus? What Jesus Christ wants with us? He wants to know you. He wants to know you. He wants, get this, you ready? Uh, a relationship with you. He knows that the demons, I mean, heck, remember every time you show up, the demons are like, whoa, what do you want? Holy Son of God. 
Even demons know the facts of Jesus Christ. So it can't be that. Although that's what a lot of churches teach nowadays. Know these facts. Say this little here prayer. And you, my friend, are saved. Ah, 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 ah. And it doesn't say opportunity. It says run away back to carnality. Yay! And I'll see you in heaven. No, you won't. Not on that basis. No, you won't. But I know Jesus. Yeah, but you don't know you. Lord, Lord, get away from me. What did he say? I never knew you. We rely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our faith is wholly dependent upon his veracity. He, his person, is the truest source of our living hope. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Scripture states that God is able as a result of His saving faith in you. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. God is able to what? To sanctify us. To give us Scripture that assures us of something we theologically call ultimate sanctification. That's not in the Bible. Neither is experiential sanctification. Neither is positional sanctification. The concepts are there, but these words are not. First Thessalonians 5.23 God is able. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. God doesn't kind of sanctify us. He sanctifies us. So this takes us all the way back to our working framework. This is the last time you're going to have to look at it. What a wonderful journey it's been. Ultimate sanctification down at the end there, complete righteousness for eternity. Our working definition, we've already gone through this up here on the board, has been this. This is the final phase of the salvation process. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the glorification of the believer. Philippians 3.21, in the likeness of our Lord. John 8.54, it is guaranteed on the merits of Christ. Hebrews 10.10-14, it is realized at resurrection. John 11.25-26, when believers will be transformed and presented to the Lord as holy, Ephesians 1.4. We also looked at Ephesians 1.9-14 through 14, and 1 John 3, 1-2 to help amplify the point on the board. We've covered those passages multiple times already, but we haven't been able to finish our material regarding our final destination, so let's just finish that up quickly up here on the board. This is where we left this last time. Speaking of ultimate sanctification, speaking of this experience, you know, people say, well, what's this going to be like? Well, we have some scripture. I'll just tease you a little bit. No more flesh with a resurrection body. In other words, that complaint that Paul had, you know, who's going to free me from this body of death? Gone. Your bad roommate? Gone. Isn't that awesome? Romans 7? Poof. I do the things I don't want to do, that thing. No more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. No more marriage. 
Tammy, stop smiling. It's like, yeah, freedom. No more marriage or procreation. No need for the son. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 40. 1 Corinthians 15, 40. She really was smiling, by the way. Bill, so was Lois, so stop. First <laughs> Corinthians fifteen forty. <clears throat> I'm just going to read straight through this. I promise. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Uh, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's Jesus, of course. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's the first bullet. No more flesh with the resurrection body. How about no more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain? Go to Revelation 21.1. Revelation 21.1. No more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to this one. This will be nice for a change. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. <sighs> I could take a big sigh on that one, huh? That's going to be fantastic. 
No more mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. How about no more marriage or procreation? Go to Matthew 22.30. Matthew 22.30. No more marriage or procreation. People are like, no more sex, really? Well, you're not going to even be concerned about that kind of a thing in heaven. Matthew 22, 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Angels don't procreate either. They neither marry or are given in marriage. So there you go. No more marriage or procreation. How about no need for the Son? Go back to Revelation 22, 5. Revelation 22, 5. No need for the Son, even. Revelation 22, verse 5. And this is just a taste, folks. That's all this is. It's just a kind of a nice, warm way to sort of close up, you know. Revelation 22, 5. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. That's awesome. Think about that. The eternal state experience, no more flesh with resurrection body, no more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain, no more marriage or procreation, no need for the Son. So, I know that's not a comprehensive overview. We already did that uh, a couple years ago. Uh, we studied this out in great detail, what the eternal state was going to be like. New Jerusalem, remember that? All that stuff. Um, so that's not a comprehensive overview of the experience, but it's a good place to start for any of you, and certainly enough to look forward to. Well, my friends, I'm not sure how to say this. Part of me wants to let a bunch of balloons loose <laughs> in the sky to celebrate the close of this magnificent series, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. However, the solemn part of me only wants to reflect with you forevermore, even into the eternal state. For I believe this is what we will be doing for all of eternity. We will spend eternity celebrating and worshiping. I mean, that's... What else is there to do? What else is there to do once you have the truth etched into your soul? What else can we do but join together in the unity of the faith and celebrate? I guess the answer is to go right back to worshiping the holy God of the universe. So we're either celebrating or worshiping. And that's going to be all of eternity. So just reflecting. You know, a good, quote, good speaker would seek a way to put some thunderous capstone on this series, but I shy away from such a thing for one simple reason. I don't believe pastors were or are meant to try to top the things of God. I think if anyone's meant to move you that way, it's God the Holy Spirit working in you. 
Some of you are already saying to yourselves, you know, I don't need a thunderous capstone message. In fact, I prefer you don't attempt such a thing, my dear pastor. And to you I say, I certainly won't. Wherever your heart lay right now, I pray that it lay in truth. I pray that you understand how simple all of this is, from the gospel to salvation and along to sanctification. And I will end this most fundamental, most profoundly important, most humble series with a single statement, and that is this, that God saves and sanctifies. Go to Philippians 1.21, and I'll close. God saves and sanctifies. Philippians 1.21. These are the words of a saved and sanctified man. May they be all of yours as well. And this is what I pray. These are the words of a saved and sanctified man, a humble man. This is my prayer for you, that you abide in this even. Philippians 1.21 For me, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Okay, guys, let's show that video. Speaking of... If I rise, let me rise on you Not on all of my successes My esteem or my pursuits If I lose, let me lose my life Cause if I belong to Jesus The flesh is crucified for me to live is Christ, for me to live is Christ, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I grow, let me For me.
Let's just close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you again for this morning's message. It was such a wonderful, though often overwhelming series. A series you personally ordained from eternity past. A series your spirit inspired as the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. Father, how do we consume the whole of all that has been said from this pulpit over the course of 117 lessons? How, Father, can we hope to know it all? Nonetheless, for this we thirst and hunger for your word, your truth, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we find whatever it is you desire for us to find, nothing more, nothing less. You promised us that if we seek diligently, we shall find. Well, thank you, Dad, for giving us the opportunity to be saved and sanctified, to live by faith, for that is what your word tells us to be true, a righteous man shall live by faith. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.